right. So we're in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7. If you would turn there, please, and we will pray. Real quick, we're, we're hopefully, the Lord's grace, we're going to finish Deuteronomy chapter 7 today, but I do have these sheets that I put together. They're just blank, uh, but it's the idea of keeping notes for Deuteronomy chapter 7. Does anybody, want, anybody need these? Yeah? No? It's just for note-taking. That's all it is, so if you'd like one, yeah. You want to write some things down? Anybody need a pen as well? Are we good on that? We good? Okay, great. Great. You guys got pens? Good? You got a pen? Pen? Okay. Everybody good? Pens? Yes? Excellent. Okay, good deal. Good deal. Thank you all. We just can't seem to end church on time, can we? Everybody thinks it's me. I promise it's not. Just kidding. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together as we go through the book of Deuteronomy. Thank you, Lord, for all that it contains and especially what it testifies about you and your character, the seriousness of sin, and your desire to bless abundantly. Help us, Father, to understand these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So where we left off last time was we've come out of the Shema, which is in chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. It's considered the most pivotal prayer point uh, for the Jewish people. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. We've moved into chapter 7. And we're dealing with the idea of, of the people coming into the land. The Lord is going to clear out the other nations. They are to, uh, if you remember, have haram. And haram is utter and complete annihilation of the societies of people that are there. Now again, this is one of those difficult things that we deal with, especially when you deal with atheists that are... Um, inquisitive about God's word they actually know why they don't believe it and they want to come against God and say well how can a good and loving God command a a genocide like this this is actually the wiping out of entire nations of people seven of which it lists here in detail in verse uh, one second part of verse one Uh, how could a good and loving God do that let me ask you if you were faced with this conversation maybe you're at a Probably the best place for these conversations to happen is a family reunion, right? It's probably the best place. But that ends up happening in a situation, and, and you're talking about the Bible to someone or something like that. Well, I've heard in the Old Testament that God commanded for all of these people to die. How could a good and loving God do that? If I were going to worship God, I can't believe I would ever worship a God that would command such a thing. What do we think? Jamie, what do you think? Okay? If God is perfect, if God is holy, and let's think about what we say about God when we talk about Him being holy. That means that He is holy other, is the idea. And I mean that W-H-O-L-L-Y, right? He is holy other, completely set apart from everything we know as customary or common. Remember, He is the Creator. We are the creatures. Therefore, by necessity... His creation is already answerable to Him as their sovereign. So that already creates creates a a point. How can a holy God allow for sin? That's the issue. And and I know no one likes to think about this. And yes, God is love. He is love. Let's not not mistake that whatsoever. Yes, Jesus Christ uh, died for the sins of every single person. 
Uh, not just the people that get saved. He died for everyone. The Bible is replete in evidence for that. But I think it's important for us to also think about the idea of just because God is love, just because he's holy, just because Jesus has paved the way for salvation for everybody, does not negate the idea that somehow sin became a diminished issue. Sin is still serious. God still thinks sin is serious. Sin is the very thing that creates a separation from our Creator in the first place. So we can't just play down sin. We can't wax eloquent about grace and say that sin is nothing. No, grace finds its greatest glory in the fact that sin is overcome by it. Sin should be the norm for us and what we should settle for. Why? It's what we deserve. It's what we are. We're not sinners because we sin. We're sinners because Adam was a sinner. And because we are sinners, we sin. Does that make sense? We don't have to sin to become sinners. We are sinners and we sin. That's the problem. So it's not, we're not just talking about the acts that we do. We're talking about the very being that we are is the issue here. So when you find that someone would want to bring this charge, well, how could God do this? How could he command the total annihilation? What the idea is, is devote to a ban or, or to ban, uh, I don't even say this, it's almost like devoting as if an offering in order to destroy people because of the decadence of their society. When we talk about a situation of how a holy and loving and righteous God could allow something like that, all they have done is overlooked their own personal debt to him and the detriment that their life is by ignoring personal sin or ignoring the fact that they are sinners by nature and are trying to cast the blame upon God. If God did not judge sin, there's no way he could be considered right or righteous. It's so important to understand. They go hand in hand. So when you deal with that idea, it is often a means of trying to turn the direction off of ourselves and pointing to other people. Don't allow that to happen. We all need to come to terms with the fact that we're sinners and it has to be dealt with. That's what paves open the door for the Savior. So if you remember in in verses 2, 3, you had this idea of uh, utterly destroy everything. Uh, Don't make any agreements with them. No covenants. Show them no mercy. Don't intermarry with them. Because if you do intermarry with them, they are going to turn you away to their gods. And remember, in the scriptures, when we talk about small g gods, we are actually talking about possibly idols or replicas that are representations of demons, fallen angels, who have led them astray. When we talk about that the Lord is the Lord of hosts, and sometimes, oh, that's the King James language, and it's so lofty. and Yeah, but the idea is, is that He is the Lord over all things. He is the Lord over the heavenly realm and all that inhabit it. So we've got this situation here where the deceit of the nations lies in the fact that Satan has orchestrated the system as such in how people think. And God does not make any bones about the fact of you will get led astray to follow these lesser beings, these idols, these demons, rather than the creator of all things. Sad situation. So he's trying to keep them from this. Uh, Verse 5, we talked about destroying everything that would point in that direction. The fact that Israel is Yahweh's chosen people for his own possession. And we're going to pick up in verse 7. Yahweh did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But here's the reason why. Mark it well. Because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. 
Yahweh brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now notice that. The fewest of people. What are the motivations for God redeeming them? Number one, it didn't have to do anything with their quantity of people nor the quality of their people. He didn't say, well, you've got a large amount of silversmiths here or guys that are going to be able to work on weapons or whatever it is, so therefore it's going to guarantee the battle. These are not reasons why God chooses people. God chooses people for His own purposes to accomplish His task. That's the idea that He's going for. Notice there are two motivations. What's the first one? Love. Because God loves. What's interesting about the fact of God loving is, is it an attribute of His? Absolutely it is. But it is Him. Does that make sense? We talk about how God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. We talk about how He's omniscient. He knows all things. We talk about how He's omnipotent. He's got all power in the world. We talk about how He's immutable. He never changes whatsoever. Those are all facts about God. But as far as what God is, what He is in Himself is love. That's his first motivation. That's what drives him to be merciful. If God were nothing but strictly by the book, you know, anybody anybody know somebody that's strictly by the book? They're a lot of fun to hang out with, aren't they? No, not at all. If he were strictly by the book, then what would have happened at the moment that Eve's mouth would have hit that fruit? She would have died in that moment. He would have snapped her neck and no one could have said anything otherwise. Nobody could have stood up with the, with the gusto and boldness that people do today and say, God, that's not fair. No, actually, it's totally fair. She's getting exactly what she deserved for what she did. One sin equals death. But because of his love, it motivates him to mercy. It motivates him to provide a substitute other than Adam and Eve paying for their own. So I think it's important when we talk about what's motivating God's actions in this world. Does he got a plan that he's going to see accomplished? Absolutely he does. But the grand motivator behind it all is love. You know what that tells me? It tells me that we don't have to be all stuffy and all wound up whenever we're serving him. If we want to serve him for who he is, then we serve him out of love because that's why he's called us to service. Does that make sense? Okay. What is the second one? Anybody know? What was the second motivator? First one was love. He what? He kept his oath. The Lord said it, and he will do it. The Lord made a promise to Abraham, and that's the way it's going to happen. God always tells the truth. Now, here's why this is important, because of what we're going to get into with the rest of this chapter, is we're going to see the idea of the struggle between the Mosaic Covenant. Remember this. I know I've talked about it a lot, but let's go over it one more time. When we talk about the covenant made with Abraham, (coughs) excuse me, we talk about the covenant made with Abraham, we are talking about that it is an unconditional covenant. It's got three sections to it, land, seed, blessing. I will take you to a land and give it to you. You will inherit this land. It was not your own. Leave your stuff and go there. I'm going to develop your seed. You are going to have offspring. And through you, I'm going to bless the nations of the world. And even if you sin and mess the whole thing up, God is still going to see it through because He holds fast to His Word. The Abrahamic covenant 
in Genesis 12 and 15, reiterated in 17 and I think 21, is an unconditional covenant. The covenant with Moses is not unconditional. It is conditional. It is, if you will obey me, then I will protect you. If you will follow me and serve me, then I will provide for you and give you abundance. So what Israel is dealing with here is by their disobedience, they actually negate themselves from the blessing of God. This is the struggle. And this is what we're dealing with. Why is God telling them, don't fall into this pattern and don't go after these people and don't intermarry with them and don't get with these idols? It's because it will negate them from receiving His blessing. And because of His love for Israel, the best that Israel can ever have is His blessing. God only wants the best for His kids all the time. We may not understand it. We may not be able to figure it out. It may seem exceedingly difficult to us. But God is never wanting bad things for his kids i cannot wait until they sell all their stuff and head out to spain in order to minister people boy i got some sailors waiting to spear them in the throat god doesn't do that that is completely contrary to anything that we would ever think he would be motivating us to do he is always looking to bless in greater and grander ways so that we would get a better knowledge and understanding of him it's hard but it's right So notice, his love and his word, his love and his word are what motivate him. Look at verse 9. Know therefore. Anybody know what that's there for? Because they've been redeemed out of Egypt, because his love is the motivator, because he is faithful to his word. Know therefore, look what it says, that Yahweh your Elohim, he is El. He is God. There is no other God. They may be lesser G gods, but they're not really gods at all because they originated as being fallen creations. They are not the creator. There's your authority structure. Notice he is the, and notice how it explains him. The what God? He is the faithful Elohim. He is firm. He is certain. Who keeps his what? Covenant. What's another name for a covenant? contract what he promises he will do you never have to worry about god slacking on his end of the deal he's never going to come up short it may not be in the timing that everybody would like but he will always meet the 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 parameter of what he has promised so notice not only is he faithful but he keeps his contract and his loving kindness to a to, to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now pause for a second because there's a lot here. Everybody see that word loving kindness? We've talked about this before. That is the Hebrew word hesed. That means his loyal love. He is loyal in his love towards his people. Now how do we know that the Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant? What is the reciprocating action of the people that brings this relationship to a working hall. What is it? What's the verse say? People who keep His commandments and what? And love Him. Let's do something interesting real quick. Everybody put your hand out or something here in Deuteronomy and turn with me to John 14. John 14 is part of what is known as the Olivet Discourse. And in this time right here, Jesus is speaking to the eleven. Judas has already left. That happened back in 1327, 28. 
But in 14, Jesus begins some pretty serious teaching here. And I want you to see some things. Good grief, where's a good place to start? Um, Let's do this, verse 8. Let's start with Philip. Philip's a good guy. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Is that a good, is that a good uh, request? I love that. Look at Jesus' reply. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long? So, sorry, have I been so long with you? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not, what does it say? Believe, mark it, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding, remaining in me, does his works. Now, let me explain something real quick for a separate study if you're ever interested, but, and I'll just give you a general term and, and, and pepper it a little bit. Jesus' entire earthly life models what it looks like for somebody to be walking in the Spirit continually. That's the idea. How do you love unlovable people? You love them as Jesus would love them, but what you're looking to do is to walk in the Spirit so that the type of love that you're having is not just a Jeremy-generated love. A Jeremy-generated love, no one wants. No one wants that love because it's always going to come up short. It's always going to have a prejudice. It's always going to have stipulations. It's always going to have requirements. Why? Because I'm a cantankerous, dirty person. That's the reason why. However, we see that Jesus is able to love perfectly. Notice in all these interactions you find with Jesus, it is always, I didn't come to do my will, but the will of the Father who sent me. It's always about what does God want, and whatever God wants, that's what I'm going to do. That's walking in the Spirit. So notice he's manifesting that out for them to understand. And it's notice, but the Father abiding in me. Some of your translations might see remaining. It's the Greek word meno. It's the idea of staying put, staying in line, sticking with it is the idea. Constantly being in him, with him, remaining, abiding in him is the idea. He does the works. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Here's the reason. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now watch this. Is he talking to saved or unsaved people? They're the disciples. They're saved. It's the 11. Okay, Judas is gone. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Does everybody see that he is telling already saved people what it looks like for them to love him? I think that's really important to understand because there's a lot of people say, well, if you're a Christian, if you're a true Christian, you already love Jesus. It's not what Jesus says. Jesus says if you love him, obedience happens. Why? Because you've valued everything that he died to supply you as greater than anything you could conjure on your own. It's a love relationship because you're trusting Him and your life is following suit. It's not just, well, I'll see what I can come up with here. Not at all. Notice He says, verse 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. Notice, the Holy Spirit will be with us forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be, notice that in Acts chapter 2, in you. 
I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will, all, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in, the Father, in my Father, and you and me, and I and you. Talking about the unity. But notice what he says. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who, what? Loves me. The exact same thing that was brought up in verse 15. And notice what he says here. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. In other words, by valuing what Jesus has commanded is greater than the options that have been made available to us in this world, and by following them through, we demonstrate that we actually love the Lord enough to keep the speedometer at 55 instead of 56, regardless if the cops will pull you over at all. Okay? But abiding by what we've been told, keeping the commandments for the authorities that He's been put in place, and in doing so, we will actually have a greater intimacy with the Father. Laverne. Oh. How do we refute that? If you're not keeping the commandments of the Lord, you're not really saved. How do we refute that? Well, you're saved by grace through faith, not of works. That's a basic foundational one, right? My works aren't what got me saved, so how is the lack of keeping works going to do something to negate salvation or say I don't really have salvation? Yeah, it's all based on the finished work of Jesus. What else do we think? Nobody then is saved. Why? We're all dirty. We're a room full of dirty, sinful people. Our hearts are corrupt. They're all hardened in some way. I would pray that we would all have softened hearts and, 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 and desire for the Lord to be all in all in our lives. I would love that. That is what would institute revival here. Us being in complete abandon of our own uh, self-protocol. I don't know what else to call it. And desiring for just Jesus to be everything in our lives. Absolutely. I want that for everyone, most desperately for myself. But yeah, if that's the case, then not even the person who's using that argument against you knows the Lord. A third argument might be the fact that he's already talking to the disciples here. If that's the case, then you've got to, you got to conclude that all 11 disciples aren't truly saved. Seems scary. Well, Thomas wasn't saved. He doubted the Lord. When Jesus showed up, what did he say? My Lord and my man. Notice that. It wasn't that he wasn't saved. He was just slow. I don't know. Maybe. But he doubted. There it is. I could get more into this. Uh, th that passage I could have a heyday with. But I want you to get the point is, notice that that concept does not change. When we talk about the idea, if you want to turn back to Deuteronomy 7, when we talk about how God looks at a love relationship with people, God looks at a love relationship with people as to whether or not we are obeying Him. Whether it's Israel or whether it's the church. You can have a relationship with somebody and not love them. That happens all the time. Thankfully, Jesus saving us was not conditioned upon our love for Him. In fact, the Scriptures tell you the opposite. But God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, stop, while we were still sinners, were you in a love relationship with Jesus Christ? No. But what did God do anyway because of his love towards us? Died for us. Everybody see that? So notice, by bringing us into that relationship, 
Making righteousness available and forgiveness of sin available. You hear the gospel. You believe at that moment you are forgiven of sin. You are regenerated and the Holy Spirit is placed within you as a deposit guaranteeing the things to come and permanently resides in you. Now the question is, how are you going to live your life, steward your existence in light of His commandments? I guarantee you guys this. If we just focused on a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, And so prove to be my disciples. That's how everybody will know. You're my disciples if you have love for one another. If that's all we focused on, this place would explode. You wouldn't be able to put doors on the doorways here because it would be standing room only. Why? Because all we're concerned about is loving one another as we know Christ loves us. Good grief. That's a life's ambition out of this world. Only thing we need to be concerned with, I guarantee you, everything else would fall into place. All we care about is loving one another because we know how much Jesus loves us. And the more we focus on how much Jesus loves us, good grief, we want to love other people. We start keeping commandments without even having to think about it. We're no longer keeping the notch belt of, did I sin today? Did I not sin today? That is not the focus of the Christian life. The focus of the Christian life is, who is Jesus amidst it all? And that is my focus. A a much better and much loftier gaze that will cause way less depression in our lives, I promise you that. So moving on here. Notice it's the idea of keeping commandments. Verse 9, Know therefore that Yahweh your Elohim, He is El, the faithful Elohim, who keeps His contract and His hesed, His loyal love, to the thousandth generations, notice the condition, with those who love Him, with those who are keeping His commandments. Verse 10, But repays those who hate Him to their faces. In other words, Yahweh is not passive-aggressive. Don't you praise the Lord for that? Kind of. That's a little fearful. But passive-aggressive people drive me nuts. Well, if that's what you want to do. Well, it is. What do you got to say about it? Right? Just come right out with it, man. Don't play games. Get it done. Let's move on to better things. Anyway, maybe that's personal beef I have. None of you can relate. Whatever. Moving on. But, repays those who hates them to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay to his face in other words the punishment will be swift therefore you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which i'm commanding you today to do them why because that's the best thing for their life life will not be any better for them and blessing will not be any more abundant upon them as it will be when they are abiding in him keeping his commandments so verse 12 then it shall come about Because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them. Everybody notice those good verbs there? That Yahweh your Elohim will keep with you His covenant and His loyal love, His loving kindness, which He swore to your fathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. Notice that offspring perpetuating the nation. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. You're not going to lack anything to eat your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock in the land, notice the mention of the land again, which he swore to your forefathers to give you, the promise of God, holding fast to exactly what he promised to Abraham to see it come to fulfillment. And if they love him and will keep his commandments, do them, they've instituted obedience to God as their way of life. Continual, massive, blessing over and over again verse 14 you shall be blessed above all peoples there will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle 
Yahweh will remove from you all sickness, and He will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but He will lay them on all who hate you. In other words, your obedience will actually bring freedom from disease. I'm curious if what I brought back from southern Indiana with me wasn't because of some disobedience I experienced there. I don't know. But anyway, verse 16. You shall consume all peoples whom Yahweh your Elohim will deliver to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, nor shall you serve their gods. Why? For that would be a snare to you. It holds you down. It keeps you from moving for where you need to go. Notice it says, verse 17, if you should say in your heart, and notice, I love it because Moses is realistic about it. These nations are greater than I. How can I dispossess them? In other words, if you look at these seven nations that were mentioned, that God's already told you that they're way greater than you are. They've got way more people than you do. They've been civilized for quite a long time. They've got fortified structures. They probably got weapons gone or going on. You were set free from a horrible, oppressive place, and you've been wandering around in the desert for 40 years, and you're supposed to go in and take these people. Can everybody see where doubt might creep in? Let me tell you this real quick. Doubt is very natural, but God is supernatural. Doubt is extremely natural for how we live life. There are tons of situations that we probably look at and we think, there's no way I could ever do that. Well, I know that this is what God calls me to, and we automatically disqualify ourselves based on how we're perceiving this situation. I tell you, don't do that. Understand that your God is greater. And follow the prescription that God gives here. Watch what He does. If you should say, verse 17, in your heart, now notice, in your heart, here it is, you've got a deep conviction about it. These nations are greater than I. How can I dispossess them? So immediately everybody's getting discouraged. You shall not be afraid of them. Thanks, God. That didn't really help me a lot. Is that it? Because I said so. God said so and just do it. But notice he doesn't stop there. Look what he does. This is really important, guys. Very important stuff. You shall well remember what Yahweh your Elohim did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw, and the signs, and the wonders, and the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which Yahweh your Elohim brought you out. So shall Yahweh your Elohim do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. What did Moses just prescribe them to do when doubt enters their thinking? Exactly. Don't forget what God's already done. Think about this, guys. This is a massive principle for how to live our lives now. When we get discouraged in a situation and we're sitting here thinking, oh, there's no way I could do that. There's no way I could ever follow through with this. Well, this is going to be extremely hard. Well, this is going to cost me a lot in it. Don't get discouraged by it. Stop for a moment and ask yourself the question, how has God been faithful to me in the past? What is His record? How's He doing? What are the odds? The odds are that God always wins. The odds are that God is always faithful. God has never lost. Not once. And because our discouragement stands right in front of our faces, it blinds us from seeing all of His past victories. When we find ourselves lacking in courage and getting ready to fall into a pool of unbelief, grab upon God. 
In my old Bible that I had, I actually took one of those small, you know, notepad things. It was probably like a half sheet of paper. And I took it and I put some of that sticky tape that you put posters on your wall. And I took it and I tacked it on the inside of my Bible. Now, it made it bulky to handle, but it was worth it. Because I wrote down at the top of it, things that God has done in my life. And what I did was I started writing down dates and things he had done. Right? My wife agreed to marry me. That had to be of God, right? So I automatically put that one down. <laughs> she was either severely deluded or something. It had to be the work of the Spirit, right? And then we talk about the birth of our son. We talk about going to plant a church. We talk about when we saw people get saved. We talk about when there was a sickness. And we prayed about it. We talk about where maybe there was someone in our church or fellowship who had a pregnancy that was extremely serious and they were on bed rest and we didn't know if there was going to be a miscarriage or not. And so we sought God's face and we saw Him come out faithful. We saw when we would go out and evangelize people for certain events and we're praying to the Lord, please open their eyes so that they can see the truth of the gospel. And we're watching people get saved and we're documenting all those things. Why? Because in some point in my life, I'm going to get severely discouraged and I need to look back to keep a record of what God has done. In the moment, I don't think about those things. Do you? In the moment, all I'm worried about is the critical condition in front of me. Notice what God is saying. You people who have no military training and no weapons whatsoever, you're going to cross over this river here and you're going to destroy everyone. All of them. Oh my gosh, we can't do that. You're right. You can't. I can. So put your eyes where they should be. Don't look on your ability. It's going to fail. Don't think about your intellect. You can't form a battle plan to accomplish this purpose trust god what has he done in the past let me ask you this was pharaoh and the nation of egypt 40 years previous to this weren't they the greatest superpower in the world do you think they were more powerful than all the nations in the promised land put together oh they probably were i mean they had chariots we don't hear of anybody having chariots in this promised land but that's considered a major offensive for them of what they have well, if that's the case, or let's say it this way, if he destroyed the greatest, can he not deliver you from the smallest? Or let's put it in New Testament terms, he who gave you his son, will he not also with him freely give you all things? Isn't that true? And the promises of God are powerful and sure. Because of our daily lives, we often get discouraged and lose sight of them. But notice, God keeps championing us. Be faithful. Remain with me. Stick with it. Follow what I say. Don't lose heart. Keep going. I want the best for you. Over and over and over again. God is your greatest cheerleader. He's your greatest cheerleader. Notice he says in verse 20, Moreover, Yahweh your Elohim will send the hornet. Anybody know what that is? What's that? Nasty? It's nasty? Well, it could be nasty. What's that? Pestilence, maybe? Stinger? The Green Hornet? And his sidekick, Cato? Is that how you say his name, Cato? I don't know. Maybe? Here's the thing. I don't know what it means either. It could mean literal. It could mean figurative. What we know is that God is giving an illustration of how he is actively involved. Anybody spend any time with hornets? Anybody hornets as pets no anybody invited one to be in your car with you while you drive somewhere 
No, it doesn't happen. So here's what we know, theologically speaking, of all the deep knowledge that I have, it is bad. That's what we know, okay? Notice, he will send the hornet against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. If they're seeking shelter in caves, God's going to go in there and strike them down. Don't worry about keeping numbers if you got all of them. God will make sure that all of them get gotten. Let's say it that way. Just be faithful. He says here, verse 21, You shall not dread them, for Yahweh your Elohim is in your midst. A great and awesome God. Yahweh your Elohim will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly for, and notice how smart this is, the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you. If the entire land was vacated at one time and everyone died and the children of Israel weren't able to spread out and to multiply in order to overcome the land, then what you've got is wild beasts would overcome the land and ultimately kill all the people. Notice that God is strategic in how he's going to go about doing this. You know what that requires of the people? Trust and patience. Let God do it in God's time. Verse 23, But the Lord your God will deliver them from before you and will throw them into a great confusion until they are destroyed. Notice that. The very beginning inklings of the battle are actually going to be mental. It's not actually about taking up a sword against somebody. He's going to start with their minds first in order to start securing the victory. That's what God's able to do. Verse 24, He will deliver their kings into your hand so that you will make their name perish from under heaven. No man will be able to stand before you until you have destroyed them. The graven images, this goes back to 5.8, destroying everything. The graven images of their gods, these demons, you are to burn uh, with, your fi- with, with fire. The idea, uh, sorry, 5.8 five, five, uh, sorry, five, is what it was before. And we're also talking about chapter 7, verse 5 here, about tearing down everything. You're to burn them with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them. In other words, their riches have no value before you because you are with God and you serve God. They mean nothing to you. Get rid of them. Burn them expel them from everything uh, that is on them nor take it for yourself for you will be snared by it for it is an abomination that word means it is abhorrent in the sight of god it has no place in his eyes it says here uh, it, it is abomination to the lord your god verse 26 you shall not bring an abomination into your house and like it come under ban you shall utterly detest it and you shall utterly abhor it, for it is something banned. And everybody see the idea of come under a ban? It is something to be banned in verse 26. Everybody see that? It's the idea of harem. It's to be utterly destroyed, devoted to God for nothing but destruction. There's no value in it whatsoever. In other words, he is telling them, hate what is evil. Now we know how this played out. Give me just one minute. Everybody familiar with Achan, right? After they conquered Jericho? And he kept some idols for himself, did he not? And he buried them in his tent. And what happened to them? They stoned his entire family. They wiped his name off of the face of being part of their tribes. Gone. All of them. Killed all of their cattle and livestock too. Nothing was to remain because of this severe disobedience when God warned over and over and over. This stuff has no value Don't think that it does. Don't be deceived. Don't settle for ridiculously impoverished less 
then the eternal greatness of extreme blessing I want to lavish upon you. Don't be satisfied with the things of this world. Understand that God has infinitely greater. That's the idea. One of the greatest ways we can do that is recognize what is evil and hate it. There's nothing wrong with that. God commands it. Any thoughts, any questions with the end of chapter 7? Are God's instructions pretty clear? They seem pretty clear, don't they? Makes you wonder where it all went wrong in Joshua, doesn't it? It's very interesting. If you ever want something fun, start reading Joshua. Find where things went wrong. Pay attention to the circumstances around it. Very interesting how we can keep from failure today. So, Let's pray together. Father, You are perfect in patience. You are perfect in Your plan. You are perfect in how You sought to lead Israel. And the calamities that came upon their lives and that come upon our lives are because of sin. Because in some way we have esteemed or valued sin as greater than what You have said. And God, I pray that we have a very sober realization of being corrected today about that faulty thinking. Please bless our weeks. Father, provoke our hearts to choose You over the things of this world, whether they be physical sins, mental sins, whatever it is. Father, You're so much greater and You desire to bless so much more and You are so full of love and You will hold fast to Your Word. Give us a mindset to dwell and to meditate upon those things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone. I hope you have a great week.